everybody. Welcome back to the Science Dispatch podcast. My name is Cameron English, your host as always. Joined, as I always am, by Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health, and special guest today, Dr. Joshua Bloom, Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences, has stepped down out of his ivory tower <laughs> to gallivant around with us. Plebes. There you go. I was going to say proles, but that's good too. Plebes, proles, whatever, uh, whatever slur you want to use. Josh is hanging out with us today. Josh, how are you, my friend? Well, I was just telling Chuck. I woke up yesterday. I was sure I had COVID. Uh-oh. And I stuck so many things up my nose trying to prove that I did, <laughs> that I think I did damage, but I don't have it. Just a cold. Well, you should have got vaccinated. Uh, Tuesday is when the <laughs> boosters come out. <laughs> don't you worry. I'll be waiting at the CVS with my sleeve rolled up. All right. Very good. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome back to the show, everybody. We got uh, two stories, as always, and uh, our respective uh, scholars here are the authors of, of each of them. So first up, we're going to talk about Dr. Bloom's story, which is uh, originally published in Law 360, and uh, we republished it on ACSH.org. It's called, Laws Based on Rapid Drug Tests Are Unscientific and Unfair. So let me read this description, Josh, and then you can tell us what's most important. So you write, are impending drug DUI laws scientifically justified, accurate, or fair? If you're pulled over for a traffic violation in certain locations and asked to take a roadside saliva test, you may find out that they're anything but. And this is, of course, a piece that you co-authored with uh, our colleague, Dr. Henry Miller, who sadly could not join us today. So uh, jump in here, Josh. Tell us what's going on. What are these tests? Why should we be suspicious of them? Uh, suspicious is not strong enough. Uh, in utter terror, I think, would probably be more accurate. Oh, hold on, sorry. Nobody ever calls me, and now they do. Uh, so uh, there was an article uh, back in July about the state of Kansas uh, using a roadside saliva test developed by Abbott called Sotaxa. And it measured six different classes of drugs, and that's debatable right there. And um, I was intrigued and also a little bit disturbed because of the way they measure these drugs, the drugs that they measure, and the fact that um, none of them has any standard of impairment. So, which doesn't matter because the test doesn't give a blood level or a saliva level. Just says presence or absent, huh? Yeah, it's a yes-no test. So... It, not only don't you have, aside from alcohol, any idea of blood levels or urine levels that would indicate um, impaired driving, you also don't have an instrument that measures it. So I, I guess those are consistent. One of the things you point out in here, and this is what really stood out to me, is that because of the way... Um, THC is metabolized, 
you could have s smoked or ingested, you know, pot uh, yesterday or two hours ago or three weeks ago, potentially. And this test would give you the same result either way. So in one case, you're much more likely to be impaired. Uh, whereas in the other case, you're almost certainly not just given the amount of time since, since you, since you took the drug. So talk about that. I mean, that just sounds absolutely crazy to me. I think marijuana is, is the driving force behind this because you know, obviously there are going to be more people smoking it and there'll be more people driving while stoned. And that's not great because, you know, it doesn't do exactly what alcohol does, but there are enough similarities to screw up your judgment and your reflexes that if you're, if you're really high, you shouldn't be behind a wheel. So it's a real problem with a false solution. And uh, let me just tell you some of the things that that's wrong. You mentioned one. I actually saw um, an NIH paper that said that the half-life of Delta THC, Delta 9 THC, can be 67 days uh, in humans. I've also seen one day and 10 days. So let's call it a month. So that means that if you had a, if you had a joint a month ago, you might could very well fail this test. So, uh, and then we're talking about a product. Um, the craziness uh, persists because it's a product that's pretty much legal in States and still <laughs> schedule one uh, federally. So it's either legal or not and you're either impaired or not. And then the test is telling you how much you are or are not impaired, except it doesn't. Well, I think the key point, uh, one of the key points that, that I saw was that we're now talking about um, a drug that's been legalized in many states, but a lot of our laws have not caught up with it chemically or occupationally? Uh, it's not for the lack of effort. If you go back years, you see people trying to develop standards, let's say blood levels or urine levels for uh, THC and compare them to some measure of impairment. And it hasn't been done. It's just, Right now, it's not possible. And I've you know why that is because I would think that you know you're going to get a blood level at least. Right, but um, one of the journals I read said that they uh, they kind of use uh, five micrograms per liter or some some arbitrary number, and, uh, and they call that the impairment point. But then other studies have shown that that number is meaningless. So let, let me just drag this out a little bit. So then it, you can measure a blood level, but there's no um, mapping of those levels to um, impairment. And there's no study that shows that, you know, any given level is impaired across the uh, population. Would that be fair? Yeah, there there are no and there are no standards. So no, 
no one has yet come up with a blood, saliva, or urine level that um, indicates impairment. And impairment with THC is, is going to be difficult because different people react very differently to it. So I, um, I don't see that being done anytime soon. But, and, you know, between that and the fact that it's decriminalized in, in the states but not the federal government, that's craziness right there, and that you've got a yes-no test um, which can determine a few things. First of all, if you're a, a train conductor or a truck driver, they test you for a panel of drugs, THC being one of them. And, and if you test positive, you lose your job. Let me tell you two other reasons why it doesn't work. One is you, you cannot walk down the street without having people shoving CBD oil in your face. It cures everything. It'll make you live to 700 years old and you can fly. Now, CBD oil with less than 0.3% THC is legal. You can rub it on yourself. You can drink it. But um, it's, it's quite possible that that 0.3% THC will be picked up in the test. So you may be using something that has a minuscule amount of THC in it, for whatever, I mean, I suspect it's going to end up doing nothing when they study it, but people use it for pain and insomnia and whatever. Uh, so you could be using a perfectly legal product, and they either have too much THC in it or they have the right amount of THC in it, and you're going to lose your job still. Interesting. I assume the same applies to police, firemen. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and um, a lot of government workers, there's, there's a whole list. But it doesn't make sense. I mean, it really doesn't make sense now that marijuana is sort of a, you know, either legal or look the other way drug. I mean, who's who's arrested for marijuana anymore? It's nobody. So... Josh, you and Henry in the story allude to the fact that this is probably some variety of ass covering, my phrase, not yours, um, for, for these various state governments, because they, they seem to realize that there is a real risk of people driving impaired, whether it's pot or some other drug, not just alcohol. And rather than take the time to develop an appropriate test and do something that's really based on science, they're just going to pull the trigger on this and they're going to say, you know, look, we're, we're protecting your kid. So it seems to me this is just classic public choice economics. You have regulators or politicians responding to the incentives that they have, even if what they're going to do is actually arguably more harmful. What do you think of that? I think it's a rerun of the, uh, the let's call it the criminalization of opioids starting about a decade ago. Uh, they, the CDC and the DEA have been operating under standards that have little or nothing to do with science. And in fact, the, 
people aren't dying from Percocet anymore. It's all it's all fentanyl. Yet, yet they continue to crack down on Percocet. So they're doing something so they can say, hey, you know, we're, we're cutting prescriptions. Meanwhile, if you, if you look at the graph, the more you cut prescriptions, the more the deaths go up. And that's not a coincidence either. They're, you know, I could talk for hours on this, but I, I absolutely believe that's cause and effect, not just uh, a temporal association. So this is more of the same. It's government by stupidity and ass covering. But there's, uh, there's another side to this, and that comes out of Kansas, where they're starting to use this saliva test from Abbott. And... Um, they, they're very careful to point out that it's not used in court this week. Uh, you better believe if you get pulled over for driving while stupid or texting or whatever, there's the saliva test. It takes 15 minutes, and it'll pick up something. Okay. So, mate, that's going to go on your record for sure because – the DEA knows every time you buy a Sudafed. Uh, maybe that's not harmful. Uh, but let's say you're in a crash and they pick up some marijuana in your system. Uh, are you going to be charged with vehicular homicide like you do when you're drunk? So th there's a real danger to um, innocent people uh, being abused by an uh, unscientific law. That's interesting because you'd think, you know, the, certainly the insurance companies would hop right on that. Oh, you, you bet. And deny that insurance claims. The, the, there's going to be a big fight with insurance companies on this. And... Uh, I think that's probably going to be the biggest, well, the second biggest story. Uh, and it, it's all it's all based on nothing. I, I forgot to mention that if you're at a party where people are really smoking a lot, it's possible to inhale enough to fail the test, even if you never even took a puff of it. So, um, and I guess the final problem is what is the um, saliva test measuring? Well, it, it's measuring a cutoff. There's a limit of, let's see, for cannabis, for uh, THC, 25 nanograms per mil. So you're really being judged by the quality of the instrument. Perhaps 10 years ago, it could only pick up one uh, ten times that. So the more that analytical chemistry uh, proceeds in terms of sensitivity, the guiltier you get, which is crazy. So, Josh, we've had uh, Dr. Barbara Bill Hour on the show the last few weeks, who was a lawyer. So I'm thinking more like a, an attorney these these recent days. So my question, based on that, is. If you're a defense attorney worth your salt, like if you have any skill at all in the courtroom, I would imagine you could take uh, 
the article that you and Henry wrote and look at some of the research behind it. And you could go into court and say, this test is absurd. My client is clearly uh, not guilty of this charge, or at least you can't prove it. So, you know, case dismissed, right? I mean, I guess you can't know how this will unfold legally, but I'm just wondering if you're willing to speculate. I imagine that there's a lot of people that would be able to beat this in court if it's a bunk charge. Well, they'll, they'll need expert witnesses and, I just happen to be one if anyone wants to hire me. <laughs> but seriously, this is the kind of thing I could take apart in 15 minutes and list 10 things that are wrong with it in a very clear way so that um, a jury or a judge would understand that this is nonsense. And I just gave you a smattering of them. Uh, l l let's get to a different a different class of drugs. All right, so marijuana is more or less legal. Uh, cocaine is not. It has one medical use, but it's it, it, it's not the kind of thing where it's going to get picked up. It's it's rarely used. Um, it's a nasal an uh, anesthetic. So you, let's say you you measure. The presence of cocaine. Well, I think that's a pretty fair assessment that you're a cocaine user. Uh, so that's an illegal drug. And I could see perhaps having an argument that uh, it makes sense to assume somebody who tests positive for cocaine once has probably used it many more times. But now... Um, another problem is they're testing for three classes of legal drugs. So this is pure madness. Uh, one of them is uh, amphetamines like uh, Adderall. I, some large percentage of the country, uh, at least a percent, maybe more, are, are on ADHD drugs. And these are legal prescriptions. They're following the doctor's orders. And these drugs are taken daily. So you're definitely going to test positive for, for that. And the same with uh, Valium-like drugs and also uh, with opiates. So what, what they're saying here, uh, if you take these tests literally, if you are involved in a traffic incident or got get pulled over or there's an accident and, and you're taking your prescription drugs for Adderall, that's going to, that's going to be a factor. And I suspect people, I, I don't suspect, I, I bet people are going to be prosecuted on the basis of these tests. So what, what does that mean that, Somebody who takes um, Adderall or amphetamine can never uh, drive a bus or a car or it's a uh, you're going to have half the country on on the on the DEA's uh, list if you if you measure that. So uh, it's it's difficult to. Um, come up with a way to um, ensure that people who are taking 
legal prescriptions and have legal prescriptions and are not abusing them are not lumped in with people who are, you know, driving around stoned out of their mind on methamphetamine or, 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 um, or cocaine. So that's a distinction that isn't made either. So, uh, and finally, uh, so, you know, there are some people who are on chronic opioids and, um, does that mean they can't drive? I don't think so. Uh, I suspect at least many of them are perfectly fine driving. And um, so you know, are, are people who have to take these drugs um, going to be flagged? And it gets even worse in this case because there are huge differences or genetic differences in the metabolism of these drugs. So some people clear them quickly, some people clear them slowly, and it can be, you know, 50, 100 fold difference. So then in this case, you'd be taking a legal drug, which may or may not be picked up depending on your genetics. So that's pure craziness. And um, I, I, I fail to see anything in all of this that gives a fair answer or, or a scientifically valid answer. So before we move on to Chuck's story, either or both of you take, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds and maybe point us in the right direction. How do we start to fix this? Because presumably there is not a ready-made solution. Well, as Henry and I pointed out, uh, it's better to do something wrong than to do nothing in government. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I would argue that this is doing more harm than good if you're deciding people's guilt or innocence or lawsuits uh, based on science that's um, violating something that Paracelsus came up with in the 15th century. And that's, of, co of course, the dose makes the poison, the drug makes the impairment. So the, the, it's just wrong on so many levels. If there's no way to um, accurately measure, get a blood level or a saliva level, and then compare that to a standard of impairment, this shouldn't be done at all because it's going to be misused. I would agree with that. I think that maybe the better way would be to document the impairment first. You know, the field field sobriety tests are are are, are plus minus. They're certainly subjective to a certain degree. But I would think that if you had an objective measure of impairment, um, so that you demonstrated there's impaired driving then you could have a, a different conversation about what caused that impairment. Uh, that's the easy case. I mean, if somebody's, yeah. Yeah. if somebody's driving backwards on, on the Long Island Expressway and they're, and they, they can't even stand up straight that they're, they're impaired, but it maybe it's not even by the drug that's being measured. Oh yeah. I know. 
No, no, exactly. But I just think, you know, you, you might from a, from a medical side be able to find a, a test that is fairly consistent in documenting impairment. Only alcohol, though. That's the, that's the real problem here. All right. It joins a, a series of our conversations that ends with, it's complex and we don't have a good answer. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, listeners should just assume there is no answer unless we say, hey, there's an answer, because uh, there generally isn't, because life is complicated. All right, Chuck, let's move on and uh, talk about this uh, this strikingly interesting article of yours um i don't i don't think people would initially look at a a, you know an article about measuring oxygen in your blood and go this is going to be really really important for me to read but nonetheless i think it is so this is called debunking the pulse oximetry study and you write in the summary here another week another disparity of care in this case it's attributable to a measure known to be flawed pulse oximetry Does the flaw lie solely in the tool or how it is used? Let's take a deeper dive into the latest study of healthcare disparity. Okay, so maybe for the uninitiated like me, you could explain what pulse oximetry is and what it does. Pulse oximetry is a non-invasive way of determining um, how well you're oxygenating. Uh, So in this case, they were looking at patients with COVID. So it was important to be able to differentiate uh, the patients that had poor oxygenation and might be candidates for uh, supplemental oxygen or ventilation uh, to be treated. Uh, the way it works is by uh, basically shining a light into your fingertip and uh, reading the, I guess, the, the brightness of the light. Uh, and they can use that as a measure to calibrate uh, what your oxygen level is. The difficulty with the test, and this has been known for several years now, is that it um, underestimates um, individuals that have a skin tone other than white. And so certainly for uh, the large parts of the black and Hispanic population, um, the test underestimates oxygenation. So if you're using this as as a measure of what therapy to institute, that raises some real concerns. Um, so this is another in a, in a series of studies. I think that if you use the word disparity, it moves you up in the ranking to get published. Um, and what they looked at here was uh, um, patients being admitted to the hospital with COVID that had um, pulse oximetry done and, and the outcome. And there was about 41,000 patients that had pulse oximetry, but they really zeroed in on a population of about 8,000. And these patients had both the non-invasive pulse oximetry test, and within 10 minutes of that, also had uh, a more invasive arterial blood gas where we stick a needle in your artery and take some blood, and we can get an exact measure of your level of oxygen. And that's really the key to why this study uh, makes very little sense. So they go on to, to show that as we've already established, pulse oximetry um, underestimates the level of oxygen in black and Hispanic patients, but there was a wide range uh, within that. And as I tried to point out, race is a poor discriminator of skin tone. There are very light-skinned blacks, very dark-skinned blacks, so that, and, and the same for Hispanics. So it really has to do with your skin tone. Uh, more than your race. And so right away we have a problem because we, we're using that social construct once again to our advantage when we want to. 
In any case, what I found most interesting is that they talked about a term that they said unrecognized need, which meant that um, the patient had a non-invasive test and 10 minutes later had an invasive test and there was a disparity in those numbers by about six or seven points um, so that the doctor was being misled by the original non-invasive test. But the matter of fact is, is that the doctor ordered the invasive test. They weren't content with the non-invasive information. So they'd already had moved on and they'd, they'd assessed the tool and said the tool wasn't answering their question and decided to continue um, to, to treat the patient. And I think right away that that's the end of the study. There was really, uh, they demonstrated there was about a 45 minute delay uh, in care for the patients who had an normal pulse oximetry followed by an abnormal blood gas. But the fact of the matter was the doctor had already ordered the blood gas and a 45 minute disparity in, in starting treatment can be due to any number of things, including how many people are waiting to get drugs out of the pharmacy, whether the respiratory therapist is there, where the patient is located in the hospital. It has very little to do. Hey, Chuck. Uh, with race. Yes, sir. Um, I, you know, everybody's played around with pulse oximeter. Uh, and it's sometimes it just seems to depend on how it snapped onto your finger or what finger. And then, like in, um, you know, I've, I've been dead on some <laughs> of these measurements and then I came back to life on the next one, two seconds later. So how valuable is this tool? Um, it's a screening tool. It, it helps you can to separate people out. I mean, if, if the normal respiratory rate is about 20. Uh, and so when your respiratory, when you're starting to breathe at 30, 35 breaths a minute, there's a problem there. I don't need the pulse ox to confirm that. I would rather move on to, you know, getting a blood gas or whatever is necessary. But in, in, a, in a crowded hospital situation, uh, getting a blood gas requires more time and effort than simply popping a pulse oximeter on somebody and saying, oh, gee, their levels are low. It's one piece of a complete examination, and it is not the be-all, end-all um, that sometimes the media would, would make it seem to be. Um, it, it's just part, it's part of the entire examination. And I think that they, they, they demonstrated that very well in the study because more black patients than white patients had blood gases done because the, the doctor already did not trust the numbers that they were seeing. So we're already heightened to that. So this, to my mind, is uh, media needlessly uh, looking for something to write about. And, and finding it here. Well, you could argue that uh, that what you're describing uh, is is uh, standard of care or even better because they recognize a problem and they want a real answer. And if skin color is interfering with the accuracy of the test, then you better try something else. So uh, 
Is that discrimination? No, it sounds like good medicine to me. Exactly. But it, the way the, the researchers po- posited it as unrecognized need um, it, it is pejorative from my point of view because the doctor went ahead and got a blood gas. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that there's an attempt being made uh, – to self-flagellate in the medical community about the various disparities um, that we are guilty of. But this is not one of them. So, yeah. Chuck, you, <clears throat> to, to the point you just made, you, you include two headlines. One's from uh, MedPage, the other's from the New York Times, and they both basically say the same thing. So, yeah. Times says, faulty oxygen readings delayed care to black and Hispanic COVID patients, study finds. Now, if I just heard you correctly, that's literally the opposite of what the study finds. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I guess, it, in but, terms of the actual time between the blood gas and when they started treating the patient with an antibiotic or oxygen, there was a 45-minute difference in, in time overall. But without knowing anything about the hospital and where they were being seen and how crowded it was, there are any number of other reasons that could account for a 45-minute delay. In the grand scheme of things, that is not a particularly long period of time. And again, we're talking about people that are coming in that are fairly ill with COVID. So we're talking um, at the peak of the hospitalizations in pandemic, which is when the study was done. So more, a more broad question based on that. That just sounds, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, it just sounds like there's confounding here that they either didn't account for, or they didn't care to account for. Um, okay. So the more the broader question goes to some comments I've heard from a, a psychiatrist named Sally Sattel. Josh is probably you're both probably familiar with her because she's written a lot about opioids and and uh, definitely uh, yeah the political correctness in medicine. But one of the points she's made in multiple books and in multiple interviews and so forth is that. The sort of whatever you want to call it, whether it's uh, PC medicine or it's critical social justice or whatever, we're getting to a point now where you have you have patient care potentially suffering because a lot of these academics and a lot of these physicians, they're either under pressure to virtue signal that they have the right point of view or they're just willingly doing it because, you know, it's just they agree with it ideologically and the patients uh, very likely could start to suffer and, and be sicker than they have to. And, and God forbid, maybe even dead before they have to. So I mean, what, what's your take on I'd be curious to get both of your thoughts, but, but Chuck, especially as a physician, I mean, are you concerned by that at all? No, <laughs> I don't think, I think that what uh, the academics tell us to do and what the doctors do on the front lines is often very different with I think that most frontline clinicians are very practical uh, people. And um, again, the the study speaks to that. There is more people being, more black people being tested with an arterial blood gas in in the face of a normal pulse oximetry because they already knew that this was a problematic test and their clinical intuition said that was not the case. I think, you know, you're right to the extent that, you know, you're going to see um, changes in the wording of the electronic health record with respect to using trigger words that we don't want um, to use necessarily. Uh, we're going to see changes in the way doctors hand off care between shifts 
that, that may be problematic. But I, I, I don't know that it's really this whole PC um, shift that academia wants that's going to account for the problems. I, I'm more concerned over the fact that uh, less and less people are seeing primary care doctors and more and more people are going to urgent care. They're, that's where you're going to see real problems 10, 15 years down the line because you will not have a relationship with the doctor so that when you really need something um, cared for, they're not going to have the history of an experience with you to make a helpful judgment. It, but Chuck, you know, maybe in this case, this is much ado about nothing, but it's the mentality that's going through medicine that is going to hurt people. And uh, Cameron, didn't you do one of these podcasts on um, not being able to call someone obese or even uh, mention their weight because that's uh, portraying them in a negative way and it's judgmental. So it, it, these all these little things add up to uh, basically uh, obfuscating the truth because doctors are going to be afraid to say stuff. Um, and just like everybody else <laughs> is afraid to say stuff, but this is going to hurt people. Uh, what's your opinion on that, both of you? Well, We've talked about that a lot on the show, and I think in light of Chuck's comments, I think it, it could be that that's a broader cultural issue, you know, so I, I think over time that might be an issue because obesity is a chronic health threat. It's not like you gain weight and then after you hit that weight, you're going to become diabetic or keel over, right? It usually doesn't work that way. It's usually decades of living a lifestyle that's unhealthy. So I think in the long term, that's certainly true, but, you know, it's been my experience going to different physicians that none of them yet are afraid to say, um, you know, you need to work on your weight or you need to, uh, your cholesterol is a little higher or whatever. It could be any number of examples. So I haven't, I haven't seen that yet. I think what's more alarming and, and Chuck, maybe you have some thoughts on this as well, is that there's, there's a broader cultural pressure. Like um, the American Academy of Pediatrics just came out recently and said, they still said, you know, childhood obesity is a threat and we need to deal with it. But they tied themselves in, themselves in knots using all the proper language and talking about fat shaming and talking about lived experience, right? So they're trying to sort of walk this, this balancing act where it's like we have to give our patients good information, but we're also trying to appease the people who are going to shout at us on Twitter and possibly threaten our donors, you know? So, you know, you're, you're both talking in, in, in large part, you know, about um, the language that physicians Use and, and we clearly have our own way of talking with one another um, about patients, um, and and that is changing because uh, now a lot of our writing is available immediately to the patients. But I, I've got to tell you, I, I've had the opportunity of reading my medical record over the last few weeks, given all the things that have been going on in my health. And they are horrible. Whether they write, I'm obese, fat, or heavy boned would not make one bit of difference. They are absolutely useless. They just cut and paste 
from one visit to another in order to meet the criteria to build at the highest possible level. And they just repeat things over and over again. If you're lucky to find somewhere in that, that hospital record uh, an actual statement by a physician. So, I, and I, again, I, I think the problem is, is, is much deeper than um, our choice of words. But it, it, I think it's easier for the academicians to talk about our choice of words than to deal with the, the real problem that the electronic health record has been a disaster. That's a good point. And maybe that's a, a justification for, you know, broadening our scope and trying to figure out why our health gets our health care system sucks so much and why people end up in circumstances where they're really sick in the first place. So, you know, like in one example that occurs to me is, you know, if a homeless guy comes into the ER and he's overdosed on a drug or multiple drugs, right. Whether you call him homeless or unhoused or, you know, like whatever, whatever moniker you apply to him, it doesn't matter. Right. Like the key is to figure out what's wrong with them. How did he get here? And, and maybe we don't do that, Chuck. I don't know, because it's really difficult because it's a, it's a systemic problem to use an overused word, right? There's a lot of things that contribute to it. And, and so we'll just... These are the social determinants words. of health. And then you have to start asking yourself whether this is um, something that the physicians uh, can properly address or whether you need a, a larger uh, team to, to manage it. I mean, I, again, I, had enough pro- I have enough problems managing the medical care uh, for my patients. And I can recognize that there are socioeconomic determinants that may make a, a big difference. But then at that point, I need the hand of uh, additional people to solve that. I don't have the wherewithal to find the correct housing, but there are people that can. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Well, well said, both of you. Thank you for, for diving into this. And, and I think just to follow up as I'm uh, thinking about this, maybe part of the issue is how does it affect patients? You know, so like what, what are the patients willing to tell the doctor, you know, in this, in this kind of new world that we're living in, or, you know, how do they think it's, it's, a, it's on them to take care of themselves? You know, do they feel that way? So maybe, you know, maybe we're, that's the wrong direction we're looking at is, uh, you know, how, how does this affect doctors? That's important for sure, but maybe it's also important to consider, you know, how do patients feel about this based, you know, what's going on in the culture? You know, I, Cameron, um, I'd be more concerned about new residents and med school graduates because, you know, what they're hearing in college, especially the better colleges, is this crazy new world we're in that you've talked about like chest feeding. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid this uh, mentality is going to gradually take over because um, to some degree, just to stay in college without getting kicked out, you kind of have to be programmed to keep your mouth shut or use terms that are not even accurate. So, uh do you, what do you think about that? Is it is this going to be a growing problem, or am I just making too much of it? You know, I, I think it's a generational thing. Um, I, I rarely t- 
talk anymore about um, the younger physicians because I really don't have a good handle on how they were trained and, and how they act. It's a whole very different world uh, than the, um, the medicine that I was trained in. But I, I, I think to a large extent, it's a generational thing, you know. Uh, and, and for example, uh, when I started uh, as an intern, uh, we had a beeper that simply went off and you had to call the operator to find out what's going on. It wasn't until five or six years into real practice that I didn't have to find a pay phone to answer my pages, that I could use my new cellular phone um, to make those calls. So there are changes in, in how we practice medicine that are generational. And I, and I think that we're seeing that again now uh, in, in a lot of ways. So, but that the basic... Um, I'd like to believe that the basic drivers uh, for why people go into medicine and how they practice have not changed. And that what's changing sometimes is, is the, the approach or, or, or the verbiage. But deep down at the bottom, it really gets down to having a one-to-one -a, a -one relationship with the doctor you can trust. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. Well said. Old, old, too. I'm old. You know, that's, that makes it much more difficult to talk about um, the, the residents because, you know, I've talked to, the, to, to some of them, you know, and they're, on, they're constantly on their phone or they're taking pictures of, of this operation or this wound and they're sharing it. You know, they let me take a picture that I'll send it to my attending. This is not, you know, this is a whole different world uh, of medicine. But, the, but again, I think that the, the underlying care and desire remains the same. Yeah, let's hope. Like I said, that's been my experience thus far because um, it seems there's less value in, you know, having the right political credentials when you're just in an exam room with your patient because nobody really cares. It's just, right, can I make you better? So I, ho I hope that remains true, but uh, I guess we're going to find out as, as we move forward. But in any case, thank you for joining us. As always, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, follow us on social media. Uh, Dr. Bloom has a very, very beautiful, eloquent Twitter handle. It's uh, at Josh Bloom ACSH focus group. So he knows people respond to that Twitter handle. And the organization is at ACSH org. So follow both of those. Lots of good content. Lots of the stories we discuss. And the ones you read the most are the ones we generally talk about. So with that, have a lovely week and we will see you next time.